Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new Retina Radio, Luminaries in Retina. Today, I have the great honor of having my good friend and true luminary in vitreoretinal retinal surgery, Dr. Steve Charles. Everyone knows Steve. Uh, you may not know that Steve has done over 40,000 vitreoretinal retinal procedures. He's lectured in 51 countries, operated in over 25 countries. He has over 200 articles published, over 190 patents, 50 book chapters. He was the architect behind the Accurus, the Constellation. He developed so many things that we use presently and help us with vitro retinal surgery to make our operations easier. He's developed techniques, but I think what you'll find most interesting about Steve is his life and, and what really brought him here uh, to this point in his career, what got him into retina, and we will cover all of that. Steve, welcome to the podcast, and how are things in Memphis? Well, you know, like everybody, we're all suffering with, with staff outages because of COVID, both people that test positive and aren't sick, and some few people that have been sick, and we have a little over 60 employees, and at any given moment, six or seven have been out recently, and uh, but our patient volumes are extraordinary. We're, we're literally 2x uh, as a group what we were two years ago. So I'm doing, I see 65, 70 patients on uh, two patient days. And then this week it was three. So I saw 210 patients this week and I did 16 vitrectomies. So super busy clinically. Uh, Memphis as a community is improving a lot because of the influence of the FedExes and St. Jude's and, and so on and so forth. You know, obviously we have, uh, uh, socioeconomically driven crime, uh, as many big cities do, which is worrisome. But, you know, we have a lot of positive qualities. I'm actually happier here than I've ever been, and I've been here 46 years. You know, Steve, you're a visionary, and, and I just wonder if you could take yourself back to the 1960s when you were in training, finishing training. Could you have ever imagined that our field, vitreoretinal surgery, would be where it's at right now? And, and then kind of on a broader scale, would you think our society would be where it is right now? Great question. Um, with vitreoretinal surgery, uh, I think unlike the complexity of biology, for example, let's look at immu uh, immune therapy for cancer. It was a hot topic when I was at NIH in 73, 75. Where are we? just starting to see a few positive outcomes in a narrow scope of diseases. Uh, inherited retinal diseases, where are we? Gene therapy, barely helping one disease, uh, a number of failed clinical trials. So biology progress, the, the, the incredible revolution of anti-VEGF compounds is, is, you know, defines the word miracle drug. So great progress, but in short, Engineering is problem solving. You can say, all right, we're going to go to the moon, President Kennedy, we're going to go to the moon, okay, and apply enough engineering dollars and effort and, and manpower, and you can get there. And it's solvable problems. So, so I actually, I did envision that vitreoretinal surgery would reach this level. I wrote a white paper for Dr. Norton when I was a freshman medical student and how we could use micromanipulators to do surgery. And, and, and he kept that and, and later on projected it at a meeting and said, this is what Steve was talking about when he was a freshman medical student, when Norton gave me an indirect. So I, I've always engineer first, doctor second, uh, both in terms of training and in terms of really my drive today. And uh, the, the, you know, from an academic perspective, you can't sit and talk about 
the engineering stuff until it's AFDA approved and commercial launch happens. And I've worked exclusively with Alcon for 31 years. And, and so you don't see it in the peer review literature, but that's what I do every single Friday, Saturday, Sunday, holiday, uh, Christmas day, Christmas Eve. With respect to society, I'm very concerned. I'm concerned about the rise in hatred and anger and division. Uh, maybe it was always there and it wasn't as public. Uh, maybe certain television networks are capitalizing on it and making it more visible. The anti-science movement, anti-vax movement is extraordinarily uh, concerning to me uh, for the future of our country and for the planet. So I'm, I'm not happy with progress on, on, on the social uh, geopolitical uh, front. Um, I'm very happy in the progress in medicine. Yeah, like you, I'm I'm very concerned. Sometimes I, I the old adage, you got to hit rock bottom before you can find your way to the top. I think we're we're hopefully getting pretty close to that as a society, and uh, and we can turn this thing around. We just have I these wild so. swings in things. When I see my grandkids and how smart they are and how motivated they are and how uh, they they're the antithesis of all the negatives I just listed, um, that gives me hope. Yeah, I, I think too many times those negatives get all the publicity and the kids like your grandkids that we'll talk about later are, are really don't get the kind of, you know, light that should be shown on them. And, and there we have a whole society of those those young kids, the next generation out there. And I think they're going to make all the difference in the world. You mentioned this love of engineering, this passion for engineering that you have. And that started at a very young age. You'd said you you knew you want to be an engineer in first grade. How did you come to know you want to do that in first grade? Well, my, my maternal grandfather, I was very close to. My mom's father, it was a, a Swede, came over when he was, I don't know, eight or 10 years old, ended up taking care of his family. When he was 18, he was the foreman of the Elgin Watch Factory, put himself in engineering school by correspondence with ICS, uh, got a big award in World War II for designing diesel generator sets, used at places like uh, Iwo Jima, Normandy, B, uh, Omaha, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so... I was very close to him. He taught me to drive when I was a first grader. His big Packard taught me to row a boat, taught me to swim. Uh, I lived with them for a while when my dad was in World War II. I was born in 42. And uh, so he was an engineer. He took me to the factory every day. I had a drawing board. I thought I designed diesel engines when I was a little kid. I sat there and I was on the cover of the, of the magazine. Nobody ever talked to me about a career. It was just assumed. I mean, nobody said, well, you're going to be an engineer. Nobody said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I just knew it. And you know, my, 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 my dad was a college professor. So our home was always very uh, an eclectic sort of meeting place. A typical dinner would literally be uh, a, a rabbi, a Catholic priest, an atheist physicist. Sounds like a joke that were my dad's adult students, a couple undergraduates and my mom's casserole. Dad made no money. He was professor and chair of art at a number of universities, finally Miami. But I mean, I had dinner with Jacques Cousteau, sitting face to face, talking to him. Ellen, uh, Robert Frost, poet laureate of the United States, came to our house. So, so socially, uh, that's how that, you know, I guess philosophically, that's how that got built. But engineering from day one. And it was only when I got to my junior year in college and I said, 
what do I want to do with engineering? I'm not going to design weapons to blow people up. I'm not going to make a distillery or a cigarette making machine or a gambling machine that they're destroying our culture. Uh, what can I do that's, that's challenging? And, and, and I said, wait, I'll combine my other grandfather who I never met, who was a, general, a famous general surgeon. And my godfather, my dad's oldest brother, was the most famous colon surgeon. He was colon, he was president and founder, I guess the president of the Colon and Rectal Surgery Society. And, and, and so I said, well, I, I, in retrospect, I thought I did something rather unique, but what I really did is what both grandfathers, my godfather and my dad did. So teaching engineering and surgery. So nothing creative about it. You could, you could cast it as indecisive. I did what they all do. But yet medicine is so much of an art. And your dad was a professor of art. He also was a city planner and designer and helped design like Tarpon Springs. What was the influence of your dad on your career and your trajectory? Well, dad worked hard. He, he was very uh, not coat and tie. Never, nobody called him professor. He never called himself professor. He was always with a knit shirt on. You know, we had a two-car garage finally after our little bitty house that, when I was in junior high. And, and it had workbenches, in, but no cars in there. And, and it, there was constantly doing sculpture, painting, making, building. And uh, so, uh, the, and, and he was a great speaker with no notes. And I was his projectionist when I was a kid. So I would go and put the slides in the big lantern slides for because he was had his degree from University of Wisconsin in art history, his master's degree. And so I saw a teaching style and a, and a, and a work ethic. Uh, but I, I don't have any creativity on the on the aesthetic side. It's all the visual side. It's all engineering. I'll tell you, I don't know if you look at the, at the accuracy and the constellation, I think there is a certain amount of art there and, and surgery is an art, you know, I mean, there's a lot of creativity that goes into the problem solving. And I think, and your book, your book is a beautiful, the vitreoretinal retinal surgery book is just a beautifully digitally illustrated book that is just, I think there's an artist in you, Steve. I think you just may not realize it yet, but it's there. Well, I like industrial design and I, and I've said often uh, to my colleagues at Alcon that I want a machine that looks so good, you want it in your living room, but not as frou-frou as, 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 as the Apple products that are clearly about entertainment. Uh, I want it to look like a, a, maybe an, a Lenovo ThinkPad or, or, or the cockpit of a 767 or, or something that, 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 that is, is edgy, but, but not uh, trendy and where the coolness fades. I want it to have a sense of professionalism, but I want you to be attracted to the machine. Say, God, that looks great. And uh, so the, the accuracy was too bland, you know, that sort of uh, earth tone cover and it looked like, a, uh, it, it didn't look like it was made by a Fisher Price or Mattel. That's a good thing, but, but, but the constellation is much better look. The beautiful machine. You know, we talk so many times lost on a conversation of our influences in life is, is the mother, you know, and your mother was a homemaker. What influences did your mother have on your life that carried forward? Well, she was very thoughtful and kind and, and did a lot of volunteerism and, and not in a, if you pardon the expression, debutante, you know, social circle sort of manner, but, but roll up your sleeves and really do it. For example, uh, she went to uh, the Variety Children's Hospital that you may recall became Miami Children's Hospital. And, and, um, and so she would literally go over there on Sunday and rock uh, and hold and sing to babies. So babies that A, had infectious disease in the case that they got transplacentally uh, and, and babies that were in dire need and, and didn't have parental support. 
and she would hold them and rock them all day, every Sunday, that kind of thing. And uh, so she was very, um, you know, no makeup, you know, no fancy clothes, um, very economic, frugal, uh, always exercising, swimming at Madison Hammock in Miami. And, and um, so, so exercise, help people be nice, be understated, no fanciness, no show off, no vacations, that was her. And, and growing up in Miami, what was that like in grade school and high school? What, what kind of a, a person, a student was Steve Charles back then? Um, it was always trying to balance um, a couple of things as, as well. So I had no social life at all. I, was, I never went to a dance or a prom or any of that, even in high school. Um, so none of that, no dating, nothing. Just what do you want to be when you grow up? And, play, and plus I played football. So I was a wide receiver and I played football. I got to play in the Orange Bowl. I wasn't a star. I didn't start, but I did get to play in the Orange Bowl and played some guys that went on to play big time college football and play at the NFL. And, and um, I played against John Clarkson, who was also a receiver. He played for Palm Beach later, you know, the, uh, the chair of Baskin Palmer after Norton and then later the, the executive director of the American Board of Ophthalmology. And, and uh, he was president of all four classes before me in medical school. So, uh, so that, that's, that was kind of fun. I was always trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. I didn't meet with, you know, uh, career counselors or uh, it was never about a retirement plan or money uh, or power or anything like that. It never has been. It's just about trying to do meaningful work. And I, but I knew it had to be in, on the engineering side. And uh, so I built uh, hi-fi systems they called it in those days. Now we call them stereophile or audiophile or whatever systems for for what we thought were wealthy people. You know, people that made fifty thousand dollars a year instead of twenty, and uh, and 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 built theater sound systems. And uh, so I did an awful lot of of, of soldering and ca running cables, and and then I worked at a TV station and worked in film. So a lot of AV electronics. So I'm, although I was a mechanical engineer in engineering school, I'm self-taught in electronics. Yet most of my patents are in electronics and now in optics. And you know, I think one one bit of trivia that most people that don't know about you, Steve, is you don't have a degree, a college degree. That's right. I I went to engineering school at, at, at three places. One year in Miami, which was hometown. I wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy because I thought I could get an engineering degree and it wouldn't cost my family anything, and I could play football there. And I and I couldn't. I knew I and I found out I couldn't pass the physical because then I had pretty bad asthma, even though I was a receiver. And so at the last minute, I said, "Okay, well I'll go to Miami my freshman year. I get free tuition because my dad's in the faculty." And then. Although I, you know, got along great with my parents, they're like, you know, you need to go away to school. It's, it's a good experience. So I went to NC State. I was born in Raleigh, and that was said to be the MIT of the South. And and I, and it was a great school. And I went there for a year. But I got the idea. I wanted to design drill rigs, transfer to Oklahoma. So when you go to three engineering schools in three years, and it's a five-year program, if you don't transfer around, graduation was down the road a bit. So I applied to med school. Got in hometown Miami, so I said, "Okay, I'm in." And uh, it it wasn't. I didn't apply on a lark. I mean, I was very serious about the MCAT and all that, but but and my GPA. But fortunately, I got in and started working at Bascom Palmer. Literally, I decided to be a microsurgeon before I went to medical school. I, I, I there's no question in my mind I was going to do eye, ear, or 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 neurosurgery, no doubt in my mind, uh, because I, I'm a craftsman. I've been a welder, I've been a machinist, I've been a cabinet maker, and there's no question I wanted to do detailed precision surgery, not something like bowel surgery, like my 
my my godfather, my dad's brother, did. And uh, so within, I, I lived in the VA in Coral Gables, uh, which was adjacent to the original medical school building, and had free room and board for being a blood drawer at five o'clock in the morning. And all, and I hung out with the residents, and I watched neurosurgery cases. And frankly, there was so depressing to see the outcomes. And the same thing with ENT, this big head neck surgery. And then I watched. Dave Sim, an Olympic gold medalist, uh, uh, do cataract surgery, and I said, I'm in. And that, that literally was a week or two into medical school, and I start, and my dad knew Norton, so I started hanging out at Baskin Palmer and, 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 and working in the lab, and Norton gave me an indirect thalmoscope and said, rebuild this thing and put a camera on it for me. Can you imagine when the president of the academy, the president of the society, acting dean of the med school, founder of Baskin Palmer, gives you an indirect when you're a freshman student? What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> That's really, you know, (laughs) there's so many great stories about Dr. Norton having trained at Baskin Palmer, you hear them, but we never had a chance, our generation to really get to know Ed Norton. Tell us a little bit about what kind of person he was. Well, um, I used to use this metaphor and, 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 and I think it's a good one. Um, Let's say figuratively speaking, you wanted to be tall. You can, do like Carl Kupfer did, quite honestly, at the NIH, hire short people. And if they try to rise up, do whack-a-mole and hammer them back down, okay? So you appear tall, at least in your own mind. Or you can hire really tall guys like Don Gass and Lawton Smith, figuratively speaking, and, 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 and ride on their shoulders, even though Norton was way too humble to ride on their shoulders. And so it's, now, to fast forward years ago here in Memphis, um, the late Baird Hike, who is a lot like Norton, um, who was my, like a brother to me, um, he kept saying, when you're the chairman, it's not about you. And I started thinking, wait a minute, if you're a grown up, it's not about you. If you're a daddy, a mommy, if you're an airline pilot, if you're a social worker, a teacher, it's not about you. If you're an entertainer, it's about you. And, and, you know, capitalism rules. If you make a bad product, people don't buy your food, buy, watch your movies or listen to your music, you know? And so that's okay. But if you got the public's trust, it's not about you. Um, so Don D'Amico came to be visiting professor and I quoted that story to him. We were just informally, not on the podium or anything. And he said, that didn't come from, from Barrett. It came from Norton. Norton said that the AOPO, when people were saying, oh, you have to have an MBA to be chairman, you have to have a background in finance, you know, you have to do, and, and Norton stood up and said, he always used to say, I'll just tell you, then he would tell you. He always said that first. He said, I'll just tell you, when you're the chairman, it's not about you. That's him. So he, so think about Lawton Smith was finding spirochetes when they weren't there, they were artifacts, and he had to have a public Saturday meeting of the whole team to say, we are stopping this research. I'd like Dr. Smith to stand up and admit to the fact his fellows discovered this is all lab error. Dr. Smith, Dr. Mockamer was the residents a year ahead of me said, we were not gonna see patients with Dr. Mockamer anymore at the VA. He's not informing his patients. He's putting enzymes in people's eyes without an IRB. Uh, we can't do this. Um, uh, and, and Norton reeled him in, took him out of the VA, bottom of Palmer, saw his patients with him. So he, into a creative mind of Mockamer, he inserted medical ethics <laughs> and compassion for the patient, uh, which is absolutely necessary at all times. And so that's, it's hard. Don Gass, for example, never did a budget, didn't go to attend most of the faculty meetings, couldn't remember the residents' names. Uh, so he was an extraordinary guy, 
but you had to be a caregiver, uh, a, a mommy, a daddy to all these people to, to use their extraordinary talents and make it work. But if they're like, well, he's not a, he isn't, he didn't do his budget. He didn't go to the faculty meeting. He failed to fill out his reports. Uh, we're going to, we're not going to promote him. Well, that's, what do you get? A stale program. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember talking to the longtime librarian at Baskin Palmer and Eber. she said the most remarkable thing yeah, about, about Ed Norton is he knew not only the janitor's names, but knew their spouse's names and would stop when he saw a janitor walking down the hall and say, Hey, how are you doing? How's your wife? How are your kids? And, and actually truly it wasn't just lip service. He actually knew their families and, and that's just such a special trait. Yeah. It wasn't just a memory trick. It, it, it came up because of care. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he was tremendously driven to be a retina specialist because he had sons that had X-linked uh, retinitis pigmentosa. Is that right? Yes, one son, so Brian went blind. Um, one daughter of his two daughters uh, was a carrier. His wife, of course, was a carrier. And, uh, and that's one reason. But the other reason, I mean, historically, you go back, Norton did a, a neurology residency, uh, then op went to Boston to study with David Kogan, no intent to do retina, planned to go back to Cornell and be the neuro-ops guy, saw what was going on with scapins and retina, both with fundraising and the importance of retina, the importance of indirect ophthalmoscopy and sclerobuchmin, and said, that's what I'm going to do. So went back to Cornell and did that and got recruited at Baskin Palmer. But the intent was to be neuro He was an extraordinary neuro-ophthalmologist. People forget that. Wow. So, so many things from that era came out of Bascom Palmer. Um, just absolutely unbelievable. You know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned David Sim, Olympic sprinter, turned down the NFL to go to medical school, developed IOLs. Tell us a little bit about David. Well, uh, he was, you know, I, I'm not sure what the word gifted means, but if, if it certainly applied to him as an athlete. Um, here was a guy that was a world-class sprinter, uh, held the 200 meter record at the Olympics for 20 years or so, um, beat Bobby Morrow, the other famous uh, sprinter from, uh, from Texas. Um, he, um, so baseball, football, track, uh, athleticism, uh, coupled with academics. Um, he was a serious uh, intellect. He was an enthusiast. He was incredibly good looking, handsome, charismatic and all that. Uh, but he was ethical. When I was a freshman med student, uh, i hung out at the VA at the eye clinic. I lived at the VA. And what I did every moment that I wasn't taking a class or, you know, in gross anatomy lab or whatever was go to the eye clinic and hang out with the residents and including Joe Glazer and, and, and Danny Jones and people like that. And, and Dave. So he took me to the OR and literally physically held my hands and helped me do an intercap uh, when I was a freshman student. And then the re residents would give me broken instruments. And on the weekends, I would weld in my dad's studio for him. He built uh, 50 architectural sculptural pieces. I welded all day, Saturday and Sunday in my freshman year of med school. But I'd take these instruments over there and repair them, silver solder them, and then use them in the dog lab at the VA. So I did iridectomies and, and extra caps and filtering procedures on these greyhound dogs that I would assist them on the renal transplant. And then the dog would live all day long uh, while they did these transplants to the, to the jugular and the carotid. And, um, and I, so I, they let me have the dog. So I do resect lids and do filtering procedures, teaching myself out of the book, how to do it. And Dave Sim, you know, helped teach me and get me started. Wow. That's amazing. And Tom Alberg and Denny Robertson helped teach you how to do examinations of the retina when you were a student? 
Yes. Uh, Norton went to the, 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 the senior year at the University of Miami Medical School at those days was all elective. And, uh, and they had a huge OBGYN program. Everybody was all excited about that. I wasn't. Uh, and, and OB was your fourth year if you took it. And, and so I, I went to Norton and said, what do you think I should do? So let's backtrack. At the end of my second year, Norton said, can you come meet with me about your summer research? And I said, sure. When do you want to meet? He said, 10 o'clock Thursday night. Yes, sir. So at 10 o'clock, I'm knocking on his door. He's in there with a suit on, his feet up on his desk, thumping on his head with a scape and snuggle presser, like he always did. Steve, come in. He said, before we start talking about your summer research, I want it to be meaningful. Do you want to do residency here? Uh, yes, sir, Dr. Norton. And he said, uh, would you like to interview at other places? I said, only if you want me to, sir. And he said, okay, you're accepted. I said, should I fill an application? He said, no. I said, the top 10 kids in my class want to go there. And he says, that's their problem. And so, so then fast forward into my junior year, I, I went to Dr. Norton. I said, you know, as you know, the senior year is all elective. But, um, and, and he said, yes, I went to the um, American Board of Ophthalmology and said, I've got the ideal guy to skip internship. And the American Board said, no. They said, no. He said, so he said, you're ready. He said, you're the top guy in your class as a junior student. Uh, I think you're ready to go into ophthalmology right now, but let's make use of the senior year. So I did six months in the lab, uh, putting microelectrodes in cats' brains under John Flynn's leadership. And, um, and then I went to engineering school at night uh, back at the University of Miami main campus. But I got up at 4.30 in the morning and drove down there and made rounds on the retina service with Denny Robertson and Tom Aubert. And they taught me how to use an indirect, how to use a score repressor, how to draw retinas. And so I did that for a good bit. I took only neurology for a month in Durham because it was a world-class Durham program uh, my senior year of med school. And, and you worked with Don Gass. You actually built Don Gass's EOG and ran his EOG lab at that same time? I built the ERG system from scratch at Baskin Palmer when I was a sophomore student. I built the EOG system from scratch. I performed all those tests for, for his AOS thesis. My little lab was next door to his. And I wasn't uh, an angiogram expert uh, and certainly not a patho interested in pathology. So I, I don't want to overstate it. I didn't sit there and do dissections of eyes with them and learn that wasn't my competency, but I did do the, all the retinal function testing for his, for his stuff and, and for the whole Institute all the way through med school internship residency. All the way through. Wow. Eight years, basically of, of that. That's incredible. And you worked closely actually with, with Robert Mockmer. And I think you had said it at one point, Robert Mockmer was the first person to really get you. Tell us about that relationship. I, I, I don't remember called that, that quote. My, Mockamer um, was very OCD, very uh, rigid uh, things like he would come in with a stern face, where is monkey one, two, five? And I said, well, I operated on him at three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't get him out of anesthesia. And, and he'd say, and he'd make a little X there and look at me like you know, murder. So he was very tough. But, but on the other hand, I got along fine with him then. I went to his house uh, for dinner. Some people told me, I guess you helped John Marie develop the, the disc. I did not. That's an overstatement. I don't want to take credit for something I didn't do. Um, John Marie did that uh, on his own. But but what I did do, I built something with John Marie. I built, uh, there was a guy at the University of Miami that there was a cardiologist that built a tremendous model, the first one ever, that had jugular uh, venous waves, it had carotids, it had femorals, it had all the heart sounds. 
And he said, we want different fundus views, but we want you to look with the direct thermoscope and see them. So he and I built a projector, John Marie and I did, that projected a retinal image so you could look with the direct and see Holland horse plaques or, or whatever, or Roth spots and for SBE, that kind of thing. So I, I was very close to John Marie, still am, and worked with him on that. But I didn't have anything to do with develop the VIS. Now, what I did with Mockamer is I was interested in the physiology of retinal detachment. So we used Mockamer's uh, experimental retinal detachment model, and I used and I built a machine to test the early receptor potential. And then Doug Anderson did the EM uh, electron microscopy, and we were able to show that photoreceptor outer segments get longer in detached retina if you keep the animals in total darkness. So what causes photoreceptors to go away in detached retina is not hypoxia. It's not just this alternative form of apoptosis that Joan Miller talks about and, 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 and David um, Sachs. It's, it's actually has to do with chronic bleaching. Uh, when you bleach ret, so cyclical, so I had half the animals were in cyclical room illumination uh, and the other ones were pitch black. And the photoreceptor outer segments are two, three times normal length if you kept the retina in the dark. Then I did work on uh, uh, cirrhosis and showing that the axon receptor terminals is what gets killed by free iron. Did that with Doug Anderson uh, using Mockamer's owl monkeys uh, thing. So, so that's the kind of stuff I did with, with Mockamer. Uh, and then there was an agreement made between Kupfer and Dr. Norton that that because I had a deferment to go to NEI. There were 400 applicants, two people got the job and I got to go to NEI. And, and obviously Norton was instrumental in that. But I wanted to look for what we now call BEDGEF. Uh, at the time it was called basic proliferative factor, even though nobody had ever identified it. So I was allowed to build a vitrectomy program at NIH, not because they wanted it to be a surgical entity, but to have P, do PDR cases and PBR cases where the PBR cases would be the control. So a lot of cytokines, proliferative, uh, hot eye, PBR. I was able to create uh, iris neovascularization in owl monkeys with human diabetic vitreous, but not with the PBR cases. But but in short, that's the, the idea was Mockamer would train me in vitrectomy, and then I would go on to build the vitrectomy program at NEI, which I did. So I, so I learned how to use the VISC. I, I soon switched the rotor extractor when I went up there. And at NEI, I developed uh, endodrainage and subdermal fluid, fluid air exchange, endophotocoagulation, built the first uh, real-time grayscale B-scan from scratch. Um, so a lot, of, even though I didn't go up there to do engineering, uh, I did a lot of it. I didn't go up there to do procedure development. I did a lot of it at NEI. And um, so it was a very productive period. And of course, Norton was the enabler as usual. And when you did that at the NEI, Steve, was that self-generated or, or was it a combination of your ingenuity and, and engineering skills with the uh, facilities and the financial backing of the NEI? Well, the it had nothing to do with with the management team and the NEI side. I've on my own contacted a division called BEIB, uh, with biomedical engineering and instrument something. And uh, and those guys all uh, live pretty far away. They didn't make a lot of money as engineers. And so they would come in at six o'clock. So I lived about a block from the NEI and I would go through a hole in the fence uh, and walk over there and meet with the engineers before NEI even opened in the morning on my own and develop a, a cannulas for endodrainage of subbutinal fluid, the a probe and, and the adapter to the size photocoagulator for endophotocoagulation, real-time B-scan. But it wasn't part of my job description. And, and it wasn't that NEI prohibited it, but they didn't 
help or they had no role, but the NAIH in general did because they had this tremendous engineering branch and they'd make prototypes for me super fast. I mean, I went from the idea on how to build a real-time gray scan, B scan to a working model on a patient in six weeks in a photocoagulator, three weeks, you know, uh, on a patient, you know, doing PRP and treating breaks. And so it was tremendous resource, but it wasn't NEI. It was NIH that did that. Carl Kupfer was a very difficult individual to say the least. And he was very, he was very Nixon-esque in, in his, even his physical mannerisms. Once, uh, hopefully this is humorous, but once I was summoned to what I called the Oval Office, his office, it was a conference table, seemed like a mile long. And his right-hand man instructed me to sit at the other end. And so he goes, the NEI as the headquarters for vision research of the entire world is here. And you seem to be here. And I said, I think you understand me, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it was a difficult time to work with Kupfer but in the total contrast to Norton. You know, but so much of that baked in, some of that engineering and that desire to learn and develop, does ENIH still have that capabilities or is this all totally been outsourced now to industry? Um, they, they, they don't do much on the instrument side. Industry does all that. I mean, uh, you know, OCT, Acres Constellation, all these things we use every day were developed somewhere else. Uh, their strength is on, uh, of course, the epidemiology. And, and I mean, obviously, Rick Ferris and Emily Chu have done an extraordinary job. Of course, Rick is retired now. And so, so the, whole, the whole structure uh, of, of clinical trials design, uh, you know, DRCR.net, you know, ETDRS, DRS, uh, et cetera, macro photocoagulation study, the endless list, ABRADS. So there's the tremendous strength there. Uh, now the bioinformatics piece is taking off. Now, if you look at the vision science side, there's tremendous work there, tremendous smart people. There's just tremendous amounts of, of, of good science going on. I go up to NEI every uh, couple months and involved in their induced perpotential stem cell uh, outer retinal replacement project. And I've helped them develop the surgical techniques. I'm not the lead, I didn't start it. There are literally 50 scientists on the team funded directly from Francis Collins uh, outside the NEI leadership. Uh, it was a competitive bid against NCI and other institutes for regenerative medicine. So I'm, I'm back working up there and, and, and just the, the amount of, of, of biological science experimental pathology, if you want to call it that, and, and, and vision science, it's just, it's mind boggling. So that's what their strength is. And, and that's so reassuring that they actually still have such a strong role in the development of the science. How close did you get to discovering vascular endothelial growth factor when you were there? When I was, it was apparent to me, and I don't know how, uh, when I was a, even a medical student doing research, even though I didn't work in angiogenesis, I said, blood vessels don't grow on their own. They don't grow, a blood vessel over here does know there's hypoxia over here. There's gotta be a diffusible agent. So then I learned about Judith Folkman's work uh, at Boston Children's Hospital and, and, and which was all about cancer. He said, because you know a, a single, uh, we now know it to be cancer stem cells, but at the time they thought it was fully differentiated cells, uh, you know, had a mutation that allowed them to grow out of control. And that how does that tell a blood vessel over here to grow over here? And there were vague theories about, well, it's hypoxic in the middle, except it's not true. Uh, there had to be a cytokine, a diffusible agent, and that's what Judith Folkman worked on. So we initially used assays he developed 
and, and with Michael Jabroni with a, a corneal pouch. You made this little lamellar pouch with a spatula, little slit like a LRI, and then you turned the corner and went like this. Um, and then you put this material in a gel uh, in, in the cornea, so it's very easy to observe and it's easy, you can use rabbits. And, uh, but finally, I wanted to use primates. And so I literally injected the, the lyophilized material we took out of the vitreous of a diabetic that had florid neovascularization. And when I did a vitrectomy, put that in the, in the in, in owl monkey and boom, iris envy. Wow. So you actually had a proof of concept. It's just to isolate the actual vascular growth factor was, was. And there's an interesting follow on story. Uh, so many years later, when I was in practice, I used to always have two or three visitors. I've had four or 5,000 visitors from around the planet and Makamur came to visit Zabonovich, you know, Steve Ryan, people like that. And a lot of people came from Israel and I was really impressed with their zest for science and and so i got invited to speak when isaac michelson who postulated factor x you know now known as vegf uh when he passed uh there was a memorial service to honor him and so i went to israel and i and i happened to be in the first session so I, there was assigned seating so i sat one row back from the front and so i'm sitting there waiting for the thing kind of nervous to give my talk and and i felt two pieces of metal on my head and two guys are standing behind me with Uzis. And they said, the prime minister will be sitting in front of you. You will not raise your arms or hands or move while he's sitting there. Do you understand? And I said, yes. You know, I, yes. Tried to answer yes without moving my jaw, you know. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty exciting. <laughs> and it turned oh. into a funny thing. I'm, uh, when I was over there, Steve Ryan is a great friend of mine and a wonderful human being, um, kind of pushed me pretty hard about I need to stay for a month and study, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian, you know, history, so on and so forth. And I said, I'm an engineer. I, that's not me. I, I, that's not me. And I, and I've, I've just felt like, I, like I always have, like I'm an outsider. I, and I went to my room and I didn't go to the temple on the mountain. I didn't go to the wailing wall. I didn't attend any of that stuff that he wanted me to and, and, and i was there three days and i wallpapered my room with with big easel pad paper and masking tape and i invented what became the Akers and the constellation in a three-day fugue state without any sleep uh, drawing 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 and, and and i'd roll them all up in a tube and carried with me in the airplane took them to patent attorneys to my uh, for my company innovision before alcon bought us and I, so I fluid air exchange, how to do that, how to do push prime, how to do surface controlled infusion pressure, um, air silicone exchange, gas mixing on the fly, uh, chilling the fluid, um, uh, dual actuation, all that came out of three days of no sleep, uh, just marking up those pads. Because I, I don't know, I'd read a book on the finite state machine and another book on the connection machine on the way over. And that's what was partly the inspiration. So Steve, I, that brings me to a great question I've always had for you is, is, is your creativity and your inventiveness, is it a slow build to create something or is it a moment of just kind of brilliance that just happens? Like I know you're always reading, always studying and always learning things, but is there this aha moment or is it just this gradual climb of the mountain until you make it to the top? It's both. Um, there, for, for example, let's take endo uh, drainage of subrenal fluid. I was at the NIH, had a patient that had um, uh, corneal blood staining. Uh, I thought I could see a dense cataract. We didn't have ultrasound yet, uh, but, I, but I had from history, the patient said, well, I had a shadow that came down and it went dark. 
Uh, but yet it was his only eye. And I said, well, he must have a detachment. So I've, I've done 400 transplants and I'm very comfortable doing PKs. So and I don't like epicare, temp temporary epicare or prosthesis. I do PKs. And so I took the tree fine, took the corneum off. Uh, sure enough, there was a mature cataract, took the cryo probe, took it out, looked down, big red, red attachment, saw retinal break. And I said, I'm going to stick the vitreous cutter through the retinal break, see what happens. I put the vitreous cutter in the retinal break, the retinal like that there in the room of course fluid air exchange right went through the pk wound i said boom i got to invent cannulas for this that's how that happened um real-time grayscale b scan i called sonometrics i said this needs to be grayscale and it needs to move oh no we've done the calculations it's impossible and i and so meanwhile there was a guy named jim griffith who's still my friend who was at nih brilliant brilliant engineer and he was working on a real-time big awkward system but real-time for cardiology for and you know for echo and cardiography and and i said we need to scale that let's do it so that's and, and and then i came up with a way to do scan conversion and so we could you know get it into tv form factor instead of a you know a polar coordinate going back and forth and so that's how that happened where now it's much harder i i constantly study photonics i've taught myself laser physics over the last couple of years uh, I understand bulk lasers and, and uh, regenerative optical amplifiers and thin disks and and CSAMs and you know photonic crystal fibers. I didn't understand any of that three or four years ago. So I so now I proactively study the science that might result in in, in a solution. But I've got say about 365 uh, memorandums of invention in the Alcon system, and, and it comes about from constantly saying. We got to see better in the operating. We got to see better. We, you know, for example, I I got three patents on the elastomeric retinal patch. Alcon owns those patents. Then it, the project went dormant. Then they thought it was about not being face down. And now the project is back active. And so I I'm relentless about pushing the R and D side and the management team and the commercial team to say we got to do this. We got to do this. Well, the ad board. Uh, we asked the ad board. They don't think there's a need. I said they're wrong. They're, they're wrong. I mean, I'm telling you, we need this. I'm, I've got a good track record. So I'm just absolutely relentless on pushing them. But I don't consult with anybody else. And I don't walk out there with my hand out saying, I need money. You know, I never say, give me money. You know, I just work on this stuff on my own. And, and I build prototypes on my own and I pay for them just to say, look, we need to do this. I mean, I built an ingenuity in my apartment. And, wow. I'm, and I'm, I'm, I've got two optical projects now that are complex. I paid for it hired an optical design engineer and, and paying his rent. And, and he's working on some stuff for me and um, that will be owned by Alcon. And I've, there was no ask for a reimbursement or I'm just doing it. How did you get this partnership with Alcon originally? Well, I worked with Carl Wong when he was at Berkeley and Occutome 800 invented by Conor O'Malley. Then um, uh, Cooper Vision bought them. So then I switched over to Cooper Vision. So I was the first guy on the podium talking, talking, talking up the Occutome 800 invented by Connor Malley and Ralph Hins. But then when Cooper Vision took over, I said, we have to have linear suction. I, I have the first patent on linear suction and with, with Carl Wong and an engineer whose name I've forgotten now. And that was at Cooper Vision. That's the Occutome 8000. And Connor Malley was very complimentary. So then Carl and I wanted to do a disposable cutter. And Cooper said, oh, no, there's no need. No, no, reusable cutters are the way to go. And so he left, and I uh, uh, actually got mid-labs. I got mid-labs incorporated, raised the money to get started, raised all the money uh, in the Memphis market, uh, wrote the business plan, and, and that's how the disposable 
uh, pneumatic cutter came about with the hourglass shape and rapid uh, vacuum. And so, and so then I talked Alcon into buying them, but I didn't make any money in the transaction. I, I mean, I'm not talking about little, I made none. So that cost me money, but it happened. So I started Intervision on my own and, that, and then that fugue state where I invented all that. But I, but I also built what's now Navalov and that got copied by some guys. And, uh, and we called it the laser imaging workstation. We built it, tested it. And, and, and I raised the money, raised 50 million and got all that going. And I actually took the OCM machine that had all the features that are on Constellation to the OR uh, and used it as did uh, uh, um, Henry Hirschman, the cataract surgeon. So we actually built disposables up Buffalo, New York, had a company nearby, and and then RVC uh, uh, pulled out. One, one partner left, and the remaining partners didn't like medical. We don't like medical. I said, well, I, you know, I can't build a restaurant. I, that's not what I do. And they said, well, we don't like this. We're not going to find any more. And I said, I got 100 employees. We're ready for product launch. Alcon has agreed to be the distribution channel. We have an agreement in place. We don't care. Goodbye. And um, so I literally drove across the, the street, well, figuratively speaking, and went over to the Alcon's uh, R&D facility and, and said, look, we got a problem. And Barry Caldwell was the vice president of surgery, and he said, we got to buy this. So they bought the, they didn't buy what's now Navalos. Uh, they bought what's now Acris and then Constellation. And they were kind of conservative. So the Acris, they didn't like how I had it packaged. They had an articulated arm with the fluid, fluidic interface out by the patient. So the tubings were all 18 inches long. Uh, so for better fluidics and actuation performance, but they didn't like that. They thought it looked awkward. They wanted a kiosk. So they, they redid it and, and used about two thirds of the features that I had and all the rest of the features I had on the OCM were later implemented in the Constellation. And then they hired me. And so I didn't make any money on the Acres at all, which they did. Um, they ended up spending 30 million on it, did 2 billion in sales um, in round numbers. And I mean, I literally didn't make a dollar then. I made consulting money, would, uh, but, but then with Constellation, I did get a royalty. And, and, and they've owned all my intellectual property and ophthalmology since 1991. It just seems such like, uh, even though all of those business kind of lumps and bumps and, and some, somewhat travesties, uh, it seems like it's been such a good partnership. For it's you a fantastic and for partnership. I, I couldn't ask for any more. I have a phenomenal relationship with people like Paul Hallen and, and, and with David Endicott, the CEO. I did with Mike Ball when he was CEO. I get along. Franck Lavalier, VP of R&D, is absolutely extraordinary. So I have a great working relationship with them, and I have had with their predecessors. They're the best team that we've ever had. Steve, you're really the missing link between the physician side of things and the engineering side of things. Is there another Steve Charles that when, and I hope that day never comes, but when you are no longer there to do that, who's the person that can, that can bridge that gap? This is going to sound self-serving and I don't mean it that way, but for years, people have said, blah, 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 went to MIT, blah, 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 went to Stanford in engineering. Now he's doing a vitriolic surgery fellowship. He's going to be the next Steve Charles. And it turns out they become coding and billing experts. Um, over and over and over and over again. When I was a senior, a junior in engineering school and I made the decision to go to medicine, my counselor uh, was a mechanical engineering professor that used to be a tool pusher in the oil patch, which means tough guy. And, and, and so I went there and he said, it said in the catalog, biomedical engineering parentheses pre-med. And I said, tell me about that. He said, it's new. He, that's the way it was. He said, it's new. Just 
but don't be a biomedical engineer. They, they don't design anything. He said, be a mechanical and electrical engineer. They're real designers. You'll never get a job as a biomedical engineer on the design side. And I know you want to be a designer. I said, you're right. He said, go to medical school. He said, but if I find out that you don't remain current in engineering throughout med school, internship, residency, fellowship, and in your career, if I find it out, I will seek you out and take you out. Do you understand me? I said, yes, sir. I got it. And, and that's been the main driver. I mean, I would have done it anyhow, maybe because I'm curious about it, but it, it, I, I, over So where I see the science happening is not on the engineering side. We have so many guys that are literate, that, that are doing vitro fellowships or young guys in practice that are literate in, that have, that are MD PhDs that are literate in molecular genomics and et cetera, et cetera. And so, so I think the innovation is going to be mostly on the biology side. I mean, when you, I mean, just look at, you know, and retina today, for example, look at that fold out that Peter Kaiser does with dry MD on one side and wet on the other. And, you know, there's 25 pathways and five alternative molecules on each of the pathways. It's extraordinary. And there are guys that actually understand that. <laughs> I'm not one of them, but I know that it's important. I lecture my fellows every day. I'll teach you how to operate, but you guys better be studying uh, clinical trial design and you better be studying everything on that chart. You guys need to know this. That's what's going to differentiate you from a comprehensive ophthalmologist. The ACRS, get this, ACRS, sorry, uh, paid Aaron Schauhorn to do a survey. And 30% of the membership said we inject. And this is a confidential survey, 80% or 85, something like that, pushing 90, said, we don't know the difference between Ilea, Lucinus, and Avast. We have no idea. Uh, are you comfortable reading OCTs? Uh, not really. Um, so they look at an OCT, it looks thick, and they inject something in the eye. They don't know about pharmacokinetics. They don't understand durability. They don't understand what's going on with Bay of View, et cetera. And, and, and if these guys are spending, you know, 80% of their time looking at OCTs and injecting, why don't you learn the science behind imaging and the science behind what you're injecting? And because that's what's going to differentiate you from a comprehensive ophthalmologist who's got a ton to learn to get refracted. I mean, how hard is refractive optics? I mean, refractive cataract surgery. It's hard. It is irrationally complex. Cataract retina surgeons do it poorly when they try to do fecal bit. Absolutely. I think about trying to put a multifocal lens in an eye, which I've never done. And I would just be lost. You know, it's just, there's, there's so many nuances that make a difference between a patient being overcorrected, undercorrected, happy or unhappy. And it's I know very, very few retina things specialists. Things like negative photopsy. You say that to a retina specialist. They say, what's that? I'm like, well, it has to do with, you know, HRI versus non-HRI lenses and, you know, and Snell's law and they're like, yeah, not good. So you still constantly learn. Um, I, we talked about this a few years back at the Bitbuckle Society meeting. What's a day look like for Steve Charles? Like, just take me through an average day. Okay, so Monday and Wednesday are the same and Tuesday and Thursday are the same. Monday and Wednesday, I get up at 4.30. I live in an apartment. I brought all my weightlifting equipment when COVID started that was in storage back many years ago. And so I lift weights heavy duty for about an hour and a half. I'm benching 250 and really lift heavy. And, uh, and then I go to the office and see around 65 patients on average. The fellows are with me, a fellow or two fellows are with me. Uh, they do the injections uh, after I taught them how in the first you know, few weeks. Uh, they do pneumatics, they do lasers, but I see the patient. I see every patient with them and they, they're in the room with me unless they're doing a procedure. So that lasts till six o'clock. I go home and 
six of them in a the microwave and eat it. It's healthy. Uh, Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, I operate every Tuesday and Thursday, and I start at 7.30, and my laptop's in a little room right outside my OR, and, and I have ingenuity and constellation. And, um, and so uh, at the beginning, I teach them how to block. I used to be president of the Town Mechanics Society, and it's been a little difficult to get them tuned in on the safe blocks. Teach them how to block how to put how to cut the drape how to put the speculum and then they do more and more and more as you know uh, as the year goes on and and so i i, I might do fluid air and endo drainage the retinas on i said you saw the break place with brakes do air gas exchange i'm outside and so i'm literally 10 feet away and so and, and every now and then they said ah, i got a question can you come back to the room? sure scrub scrub back in the room and uh, or, or put the glasses on and back in the room so i'm immediately available i, I but my laptop's there. So I'll be working on PowerPoints, working on patents, PowerPoints for Alcon, PowerPoints for teaching. I rewrote my whole book. The sixth edition came out last September uh, of, of Vitrius Mike, and it was a complete rewrite, stem to stern. So I've got time to do that. And so that goes on till 5, 30, 6 o'clock, uh, every single Tuesday and Thursday, eight, nine cases, um, uh, all vitrectomies, no cats, uh, rarely, rarely buckle. Uh, then Fridays are a hodgepodge. Sometime I'm at Alcon, some in, in Santa Barbara, occasionally Fort Worth, more commonly in Lake Forest. Uh, I go to the university uh, one Friday a month. Uh, I go to Oxford, Mississippi, where I have a satellite clinic. I saw 70 patients there yesterday. Um, so I, I, but Fridays mostly was, and we, we've got two guys we're hiring and, and it will be back being Alcon day. So then Saturday and Sunday, all day, I get up, work out my apartment, stay in my apartment all day long, working on my laptop on projects and reading physics, optics, teaching myself, you know, polarization theory and adaptive optics and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's just what you love. It, it, some of us love watching basketball and some of us love going on hikes and, and you love learning. Well, one time uh, my mother was not a, a religious person or, or, or even judgmental about things. But one time I had a glass of wine in my hand, one glass that my mom didn't drink. And she looked at my glass and she said, Steve. And then she looked at my forehead like she was an MRI machine. She said, Steve, what people like about you is your mind. I said, um, thanks. Uh, yes, ma'am. And I poured it out. <laughs> it was kind of a lesson about, well, I guess this is all I got. I'm clearly not handsome. You know, I'm clearly not cool. I can't sing or dance or dunk, you know, so, <laughs> but I don't do anything passive. I don't watch. I haven't seen a movie in 30 years. I haven't been on vacation and since 1996. Um, I don't fish. I don't play golf. I, uh, I used to play tennis, but I gave up because it made a tremor in my forearm just a little bit from my flexors. And I, I said that no, no good. So I only, and I do cardio on the weekends. So I have a rowing machine which is nice because there's no impact and it's total body. So no passive entertainment at all. I do like football and, and I turn it on with the sound off and I have a TV to right over my laptop is right now. And so I'll sit there and, and, and glance at certain plays when I hear him yell and scream uh, when I'm working on projects, but I never just sit and watch a game and from start to finish. I've never done that. And, and personal life wise, you've been married twice. Uh, first marriage was over 20 years, uh, three kids, four grandkids from that marriage. I'm defined by being a daddy and a granddaddy. And I talk to them every day, uh, usually by text, make sure everything's cool. Uh, and, and sometimes I'm just asking questions, but not formal. Hey, how was your day? You know, more 
hey, did you get that horse? Did it bet? What do you think about the that lock? Do you think that's various and valgus? You know, it's you know, it's it's detailed stuff about their interest, not mine. And uh, and they always ask how am I doing? I'm so I'm fine. Don't worry about me. And and so I do that. But frankly, it's not time consuming, you know. But when I look at the rest of priorities, I want to get all this stuff I'm working on. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 160, 70 engineers working on projects plus 50 science at NEI. And, and that's, you know, we're talking 200 plus people working on, you know, that are heavy duty PhD level or master's level people working on stuff other than the NEI thing, uh, which I thought of. And, and I feel morally obligated to bust my butt and be engaged as much as I can to review CAD models, to review performance specs, to review FDA filings, and not just, you know, go out there and, you know, and have a nice dinner and say, well, I like how this cutter feels. It has a oaky oak finish to it, you know. Uh, you know so that's, that's kind of how I play. Do you feel pressure to get all that stuff done? I mean, do you feel like there's a clock ticking? Absolutely. Uh, right now, I'm, 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 I've been more engaged recently. I've always worked out. I always ate pretty well, but, uh, but I, and I've never smoked or anything. But my middle daughter is a family doc, is really smart, and she did an online nutrition certification, and she's constantly researching stuff. And so, so I'm, I'm off red meat. Uh, I gave up alcohol and caffeine a year ago, uh, over a year ago. Um, and then I hadn't had more than one glass of wine a month since mid 90s so it's not like a, it was a big deal to give up wine but now i don't drink any but giving up caffeine wasn't easy i like that feeling of being zipped up you know and, and uh but at any rate um it, i'm focused on, on i'm constantly researching uh diet to make sure that uh, so i eat a lot of salmon and and swordfish and tuna and vegetables but I put on about five, six pounds. So now I got to get rid of, uh, get my carb count down. So I eat basically three, 400 calories at each meal. And um, so it's about longevity and that's about being a daddy and granddaddy and getting all these projects done. And so I don't, I'm going to the bail meeting and the ASP meeting this year, but I'm not going to ski. Uh, I've got a tibia plateau fracture. My leg dislocates from time to time, did it twice yesterday. And um, I can't risk losing a day's work. I mean, when I broke my neck, I missed three days of work. Uh, when I was in a car wreck and two people died and had a tibial plateau fracture, I missed four days of work. And uh, I had a carotid endarterectomy from caused by my ACF compressing externally my carotid. And I had a carotid endarterectomy on a Tuesday and I flew my jet on Wednesday uh, back to Memphis from Phoenix, and I saw 70 patients to follow on Monday. So I'm sensitive to the workload and getting it done and being responsible and not jacking around and being lazy or, or doing passive things. So there's no, I don't have a bucket list like I want to see the Taj Mahal or something. Uh, or, you know, I mean, I like nature. You know, would I look, would I go spend five minutes looking around the Grand Canyon? Yeah, sure. Um, it, Oh, this sure is a Grand Canyon. Okay, are we done? You know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Great Wall. I think the Minister of Health of China took me on a tour of the Great Wall, and so we walked along, and I thought, you yeah, know, this is going to be really tiresome if we go much farther. <laughs> These stairs are really steep. I'm like, uh, what time are we having lunch at the Great Wall? You know, I'll tell you, it, it's amazing because when I go to meetings and see you, first of all, you never age. You never look like you get any older. I don't know if that's the absence of hair that makes you look like you, you are always <laughs> the same age. But also, I, I'm amazed when I see you in the gym. And if anybody's ever at a meeting, go to the gym early in the morning and you'll find Steve there. 
and and you'll be lifting a lot of weights. I mean, it is like not a faint hearted, you know, lackadaisical workout. It's got some intensity to it. Well, I bench 250 in my workouts uh, on a barbell. With dumbbells, I'll do a pair of 80s, and, uh, and I weigh 195, and, and I like press 500 in the gym, and I, three sets of 10 with 500, not, not one set. I don't do things like clean and jerk because you're going to hurt your back, and I don't mm-hmm. do squats. My, my knees and my lower back can't take it. So there's certain things I can't do, but, but I'm, the, the, again, all of that is about you know, sustainability. You know? And I assume there will never be retirement for you. I have no interest in that. I, I wouldn't last two days. What follows retirement, death? Yeah, you see it so many times. You know, I mean, it's really the rare physician that can gracefully retire and still have a life after medicine. Yeah. Uh, my senior partner did it, William Wood. He's he's done great in retirement. Everything I hear is he's healthy and enjoys what he's doing. But so few people they just lose. But their he had identity. a lot of social interests plus horses. Yeah, he did. Absolutely, absolutely. So Steve, it's been such a great interview. Just a few closing things, advice maybe for for some of us, um, for a young retina specialist coming out of fellowship right now. What kind of advice would you give them? A couple of things. One is, um, of course, you can do it on iTube and YouTube. Uh, Watch a lot of people doing surgery. Don't just uh, capture what one or two or three attendings tell you during your fellowship and continue to do that, you know, decades later, uh, it's a, it's a moving target. You got to learn, you got to absorb ideas. For example, uh, Mockham was pretty rigid about his way or the highway. So escapings, that was their rep, not me. I, uh, I can't wait to compliment Stanley Chang and what he brought us the PFO or uh, what uh, Ruben Belfort bought us wide angle visualization. I want to listen to what everybody's doing and learn. And I'm doing that at age 79. Well, they ought to darn sure be doing it when they're 31. And 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 then secondly, uh, we're in medical in, in the U.S. Obviously, people do medical and surgical. So as I said, distinguish yourself by understanding the biology of what you're doing with these injectables. I mean, don't. For example, do I use steroids for DME? I don't. Uh, why? I can't. If you use anti-VEGF compounds, you can't make steroid glaucoma. It's impossible. And I don't want to turn patients that have DME into steroid glaucoma uh, patients. And so learn that. Do your homework. Uh, read, 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 read. Um, so, uh, but I've, 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 I talk to laymen and friends and I'll say, what do you think is the most commonly read journal by physicians? Answer, Wall Street Journal. What's the most common digest? Is it audio digest? No, it's golf digest. Okay, what's the most common uh, wine spectator is, you know, that's road and track. Uh, that's what people read. And, and I, it's stunning to me uh, how people are not in their game, don't really understand what happened with Bay of View about, uh, you know, pre-existing antibodies, et cetera, uh, from an otherwise phenomenal drug. And, and, but they do know everything about the stock market and, and so on and so forth. You know, Victor Curtin said, as far as keeping current, um, Victor was at Baskin Palmer while I was there and I used to have lunch with him. He said, if you just read one thing a day, you will be ahead of 99% of the rest of retina specialists. And I used to think, how is that possible? I mean, everybody's got to be out there right. at least reading one thing a day, but it's shocking how few people, and all you got to do is just pick up your phone and just even open something with ocular surgery news or retinal physician or any of these different magazines. And you can read one article and every day at the end of that year, it's 365 things that you've learned. There's some other, and I'm glad you said that you're absolutely right. I'll tell you another point and we're doing it right now, but, but to identify people that you trust that are smart and care and do the right thing, 
it isn't just the peer-reviewed literature, because if you're politically correct, you can get boring, non-useful information in the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, and if you have a whole new approach to something, it's hard to get it in the peer-reviewed literature, uh, frankly. So peer-reviewed literature is not a bad thing. I've been on my many editorial boards about that particular, but, but in fact, it's more to it than that. Knowing that Harry Flynn's not gonna lie to you, knowing that he's conservative about macular surgery, knowing that Stanley Chang uh, is gonna help you with your understanding, or that David Wong will help you with how to do PFO right and not get slippage of a giant break. But so knowing these people personally and being able to chat them up, knowing if you got a question about clinical trials, you can ask David Brown and he's going to, in his humorous way, level with you and, and know the, the story and the inside story and the inside of the inside story. So maintaining personal contact with, the, with geniuses like Rick Spade or Jose Polito or, uh, or Bailey Freund, uh, critical, absolutely critical to learning. It's not enough to just read. It's what makes our profession so fun is you can have these relationships with people. And I've so loved having our relationship. Last question. This one's very specific, I think, to me. You know, you've been such an incredible father to your children. Um, and, and it shows through when talking to you about them. What's the key to being a good parent? Well, for one, um, don't talk at them. Listen. Um, two, don't complain about your work or about study. I think if truth serum existed, you know, fium barbital or something, and you asked most people, they'd say learning is a pain in the ass that you do to get a job. A job's a pain in the ass you do to get money. And the point of money is to be amused, entertained, and to buy shit. Okay? Really? No. Uh, that, that's not it. Learning has a, a tremendous, and, and, and learning that's applicable to your craft is far more wonderful learning than knowing about, you know, the French Revolution, okay? I mean, I don't have a problem, you know, when you say Battle of Hastings, people say 1066. I say, who fought it? I don't know. So exactly what relevance it was today? None. Um, so you know it was in 1066? Really? So so what? Okay. Why don't you know what makes um, uh, Kodiak bioscience, uh, you know, antibody, biopolymer, conjure, why is it more viscous? What size needle is going to go through? And, and what do you think drives durability? You know, go learn that. And then so, so with kids, I, when I had, I used to operate from 7.30 in the morning till midnight, two and three the next morning, every Tuesday and Thursday forever. And for 15 years, with two or three docs watched me operate. And, and when I came home and I'd see the kids the next morning, they'd say, I said, that was awesome. We operated at three o'clock. We did 14 tough cases. It was phenomenal. God, I love it. I never one time said, oh man, I'm exhausted. I had to see 60 patients. Not one time did I come home and complain ever about work. And then, but I got the attendance record for 15 years at their kids' elementary school. So I taught science, I, I taught kind of career stuff, you know, engineering career, medical career kind of stuff. I watched all their programs and all the attended all their stuff. And 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 I'm proud of that. So and then I went to all their sporting events. And I so when they swam, I got a couple of kickboards and tried to keep up with my two older daughters that are big swimmers. But when we got into horses, I rode, I groomed the horses, I showed over fences with them, built a huge barn. And because they love horses, the two oldest ones, the young ones, a tennis player. So I hit with their pro. I'm not worth a darn, but I did hit with them. I went to her tennis stuff. And so it, it's about being there and it's and, and listening and, and not lecturing and not. And it's not about punishing. I never had to punish any of them. 
And one last note before we finish, Steve, uh, you have this amazing story that, that you tell so incredibly well. Talk to us about the Elvis story. Of course, I live in Memphis. Uh, some people have heard of Elvis Presley, about one million times more famous than I'll ever be. Uh, it, it was a very interesting experience. He had, uh, since he's deceased, I can now tell some of it, he had an, an allergy to the hair dye and brow, whatever he put on his eyebrows, lashes, and hair, because it was white, like like uh, his uh, like his dad. And so um, he was apparently allergic to that, and he had tremendous, that's why he was so photophobic and wore sunglasses and all that, and he would get steroid glaucoma from taking steroid drops to suppress this inflammatory response. So I got called one Sunday and said, this is Elvis's half-brother. We work with Elvis every day. I think his eye promise flared up. Can you come down here and take a look? So I drove down to Graceland in, in my little uh, Oldsmobile Cutlass, a little small one, and uh, or not even a Cutlass. And I, and I went up the gate, and there were a bunch of women, like married women from Ohio, you know, that were like seeking time with Elvis, mind-boggling. And they're like, can we ride with you? I'm like, no. So I go up, go up to the front door of Graceland, knock <laughs> at the door of Graceland, and, and uh, so the guys let me in, and it's on a Sunday afternoon, and they're listening to the sound of music. Groupies, guys that work every day with Elvis, are listening to the sound of music. Can you believe it? Well, it happened. So... Then um, he, his then girlfriend Linda Thompson, who later married Bruce Jenner and was on Hee Haw, she came down to get me to take me upstairs where Elvis was and put me in the daughter's bedroom, which was decorated by late Levitt's sort of uh, decorator with with a shag carpet on the circular bed, unbelievable. And so I sat in there, and, and Elvis came in and he had on a, a, a black uh, Japanese kimono thing. And uh, and so anyway, he was incredibly polite, incredibly nice, not uh, anything but a gentleman. And so uh, so I checked his eye pressure and so on and so forth. And he said, listen, can I come to your office someday? I said, you can come anytime you want. And I said, he said, well, I don't want to be there when the other patients were there. He said, not to benefit me. I just don't want to be disruptive to your practice. I said, well, you can come today if you want. He said, mind if I take a shower first? I said, no, go ahead. You know, hey, it's your place, you know. So he and Linda Thompson, was they sang along with the sound of music. And, and they were in the adjacent master bedroom bath area, and I could hear him. And it was just extraordinary. And that he truly loved music. It was in his soul. And so that was cool. So he then came out. She disappeared. And his two bodyguards there, they all had blue, white, stag, uh uh, tennis outfits on and 357 Magnum shoved in their waistband. And so Elvis said, I want to give you a car. So he gave me a Lincoln Continental limo that, that uh, I think MGM gave him. And I said, I, I can't take it. It's not right. I'm just an eye surgeon just trying to help you out here. I, 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 I don't need that. It's not right. And so then he gave me a rifle. He gave me a Winchester Model 94, the kind that Chuck Connors had on the Rifleman, the old cowboy show. And, uh, and so I do have that. And some morons have said things to me like, well, did you put it on eBay? I'm like, Elvis gives you a rifle and you put it on eBay? Are you kidding me? No, I put it under my bed. It's stored under my bed. So Elvis said, listen, let's go to your office uh, today. And so we got in the same limo that he tried to give me, and we're riding along, and he said, you know, People think I'm, I'm a rebel, that I'm trying to change the culture. 
Not at all. He said, I don't believe in juvenile delinquency, which is what it was called at the end, or English called hooliganism and so on and so forth. He said, uh, he said, I'm not a rebel trying. He said, I was just raised with black people and white people both, and I've combined those two types of music. He said, I love gospel music, and, and you know, he doesn't, he didn't drink or anything. And so he, he was felt badly that that, that, that that certain people connected him with kids acting out. And, uh, and, and I thought that was very profound. And, and so then we drove to the office and we walk in the front door and there's the typical magazine rack, the doctor's office, and there's a copy of the first Sports Illustrated Swimsuit edition. And I think it was Christy Brinkley in the cover. And was, I'm pretty sure it was her. But he said, did you ever go out with her? And I'm like, no, oh, no, sir. And he said, don't, she's stupid. And I said, oh, well, thank you. That's very helpful. And um, so then I went back there. And when you do a refraction, you know, you, you, you put up a plus one or a minus one lens. So I put a plus two. And I said, which one's better? And he says, hey, man, you're the eye doctor, man. Just pick my glasses off. So, so I finally, I said, do you want something like in shades, you know, the big frame? So then he says, listen, do you want to go on a drug bus? I'm like, yeah, sure. I had my Oklahoma football jersey on and, and my jeans on, and I had a, a, a rifle, and, 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 and we're going to go on a drug bus. So we go to this bad news area in Memphis on a Sunday night. Nine o'clock, he said, they're in there. And it said, pool hall. And you see a row of eyeballs looking out underneath the, 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 the curtains. And then so he said, listen, I want you to go out and kick the tires. We're undercover. I said, Mr. Pussy, you're an expert in rock and roll. I, I think more or less expert in eye surgery. But I don't think I'm undercover, like with a rifle in this particular neighborhood, kicking the tires of the Lincoln Continental. But you know what? It sounds like a, I'll do it. It's a great idea. I'll do it. So here I am, you know, kicking the tires. I, I'm of Lincoln Continental, and the and so people came out, and everybody was like mesmerized. It's the king, you know. So it was then then the pitiful part. He said, well, can, "Can I show you around Graceland?" Like like a kid, and he said, "These are my platinum records. These are my my racquetball courts. You know, I'm a very competitive racquetball player. I can show movies in there." And it had hit me that being that famous makes you lonely. And, and it's, it's tragic to, to, to think about that, really. But anyway, I went there two more times, and he was going downhill medically. He had some serious medical problems that I can't disclose. He was not a drug addict. I don't think he died of drugs. Uh, I wish the family would have released that, that he actually had underlying medical issues. I think it would be better for his reputation long term. But I found him to be a gentleman, to be humorous, and to be fun. And it was quite an amazing experience. Steve, it's been such a joy to get to know you. And, and this podcast has been so easy to do because we know each other so well. And, and just you're such a unique individual. We could have gotten off topic onto Elvis stories, and that'll be for another time. But uh, it's been a really, really great opportunity to see you again. And I really want to thank you for joining us here on this episode of Luminaries in, uh, in Retina. It's my pleasure, particularly working with you. You're terrific. I just enjoy our friendship so much and love chatting about all this. And I wish you the best. 